Have you ever felt sick to your stomach with worry or stress? Did you know that the gut is connected to the brain? Having a healthy gut is important for us and our children. There are lots of things we can do to improve its health. Are probiotics an option? Find out in today's episode. Welcome to episode 19 of the Curious Neuron Podcast. Welcome to the Curious Neuron Podcast, parenting advice that is backed by science. My name is Cindy Hovenden and I'm the founder and your host. I have a doctorate degree in neuroscience and I'm a mom of three. My goal is to bring you information from research that will help you parent your child. Whether you just had a baby or you have a teenager, Curious Neuron is here to answer your questions. Learn with us by visiting our website at CuriousNeuron.com. Join us on Instagram or Facebook. Join our courses, our live webinars, or our weekly family meetings on Monday nights. Send in your comments or questions at info at CuriousNeuron.com. Hello, friends. Welcome back. So it's a new year, and many of us might have some New Year's resolutions. I love creating new goals every year and and throughout the year as well. Some small goals and some bigger ones. I'll do this both personally and also for my business, Curious Neuron. Creating goals reminds us that we're not reinventing ourselves every single year. We don't want to reinvent ourselves. I don't want a new me. I just want a better me. This is why I decided to create a a challenge for everybody who supports Curious Neuron. I created the 12-week Better Me, Better Parent Challenge. As parents, we're tired, we're overwhelmed, burnt out. Um, I get it. We feel that there's nothing that we can control. But actually, there are really small things that we can control, or some big things too. And research has shown that building parental resilience means working on our mindfulness and self-compassion. Two things that I believe we've kind of neglected the past year. We've been so busy taking care of our kids and making sure that work is up to date and our kids are fine in school and homeschooling and and managing so much. We've forgotten about ourselves. If you'd like to join me on this 12-week challenge, we started it on January 4th. We meet live every Monday night at 8.30 p.m. These weekly parenting support meetings are called family meetings and it's free. Anybody can join as long as you come on Zoom with us and get the link from our website at curiousneuron.com. And for those of you who would like some extra support with a workbook to follow on this 12-week challenge, we also have a membership now. If you head on to our website at curiousneuron.com, up at the top of the website, there's a banner and that'll lead you to our Patreon a membership and you'll see that you get lots of bonuses not just some pdfs um, but you also get direct help from me you'll get uh, a parenting cheat sheet at the end of the month and an extra bonus uh, zoom call with me to help you through this challenge or any other parenting challenge you have as part of the membership you get to be part of this community and get some extra help from me so i hope you join us uh, on our membership or this 12-week challenge if you are enjoying the curious neuron podcast please take a moment to leave a review. It really means a lot to me and helps me know if the info I'm sharing is helpful to you. Here is uh, a review from Moni Monique 01 and I'd like to thank you uh, Moni Monique 01 for leaving this. She said, if you have an infant or a toddler and are interested in learning more about their behavior or learning pattern, then this is for you. I've been learning so much and love that references to scientific studies are used. I'd actually like to launch today a two-week 
time period for a giveaway um, starting today and all the way up until my next podcast episode in two weeks. Anybody who leaves a review will have the chance to win one of two um, prizes, which will be the most popular PDF that I have on my website. It's called Meltdown Mountain. You can find it on our shop. And Meltdown Mountain is a visual that helps children learn how to control their emotions. So even with younger kids, as young as two and a half or three, they they the way that I've created it, they're able to say that they're going up the mountain, which means they are slowly starting to lose control. And it comes with a toolbox that once you are aware as a child that you are starting to lose control, you can implement some of these tools. So if you'd like to win this, and if you have a child between the ages of one to six or seven, this would be a good tool for you to have. So leave a review, rate the podcast on five stars, and um, next episode, I'll name two people from these reviews, and then you'll be able to contact me to get your prize. Now let's get to today's episode. I thought it was important to cover this topic about the gut-brain connection um, because with the pandemic, we're in conditions that are much more sanitary than than usual. And many parents have been asking me if this is beneficial or not for their baby. There's also a lot of talk around probiotics, which is why I wanted to reach out to Dr. Callahan from UCLA. This is part of the research that she does. And it's actually one of my favorite topics, the fact that our gut is connected to her brain And you will learn so much from this episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Bridget Callahan, who's an assistant professor of psychology at UCLA, and she studies interactions between mental and physical health across development. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Callahan. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'm so excited to speak about the gut microbiome with you today because it's becoming I'm really popular now when I'm speaking to parents with Kirsten on, you know, and it's people are hearing about it, whether whether it's in the media or online. And we have questions as parents. So I'm, I'm glad that you're here today to answer all our questions. <laughs> it is my absolute pleasure. It's one of my favorite topics as well. So I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> that works out well. <laughs> so well, let's start off. I always love to start off the episode with bringing it down to the basics for those who might not have heard of the gut microbiome. What is it? Yeah, great question. Um, So the gut microbiome basically refers to uh, the bacteria, the um, viruses, the fungi, the microorganisms and their genes that live inside the human body, in and on the human body. So we talk about the microbiome in different environments. So you have a skin microbiome, so the bacteria that live on your skin, or the microorganisms that live on your skin. You have a microbiota in the gut. You have um, one that's in your nose, in your mouth. Um, so we have them all around our bodies. And, you know, for, for mums, we have a microbiota that's um, in the vagina. Um, it's really important for um, children's, you know, the first seeding of their microbiome as well. So we have microbiota all over our bodies. So simply they're just bacteria, viruses, fungi, um, microorganisms that are growing in and on and around us. Now, what we're hearing a lot of is the importance of these bacteria in the gut. And, you, you know, you mentioned, well, we hear the word bacteria. So we think, okay, is this good or bad? <laughs> right? We think of maybe germs. And I personally think back to some, you know, the germ-free animal models 
Um, but then I think back also to my my firstborn, and I was so picky on every having everyone wash their hands before they touched my newborn, <laughs> and I, I was being told, you know, you can't. They need germs. Um, so is this what it comes down to when you, we think of a, a baby and their their microbiome? Yeah. So it's it's hard, right? Because there are, you know, bacteria that we think of as generally being good for human health. And there are bacteria that we think of as being generally pathogenic, so not good for human mm-hmm. health. Um, and sometimes it depends on where the bacteria are. So a lot of the bacteria that we have inside of our gut, it's fine to be there. And in fact, it's really important for our health when it's in the gut but what causes a problem is when it kind of exits the gut then you know that might not be as healthy for you so it also depends on where the bacteria are located and how many of them there are um, as determining whether it's going to be a problem for you or not Um, so we do need bacteria we absolutely need bacteria if we grew up germ free we would be very different people Mm -hmm. Um, so we need bacteria because we have co-evolved with them for you know millennia Uh, so some of the vital or essential functions that humans have so even the neurotransmitters that our brain uses or our nerves use um, these are built by bacteria so bacteria are really important for so many different parts of our functioning as humans that's fascinating. It's, you know, we, we like it's, we sort of think about it, but we don't realize the impact <laughs> that, that this has. Um, you, you mentioned uh, also birth. So I think the way that I'd like to discuss, you know, the microbiome is perhaps starting in the fetus and then making our way through like different stages of, of life, I guess, to see what, what happens and to have a better understanding of it. Um, if in the fetus is this composition of the microbiome is it already established or is it being created oh that's a very controversial question oh (laughs) i didn't know (laughs) so um the general idea for a very long time has been that the fetus the fetal environment so when the baby's in the womb that's sterile so you have a sterile environment in there so there's no bacteria that's in there from the Mm -hmm. outside world so there's no essentially no microbiome in the in the fetus and there's some evidence so the controversy controversy comes um with some studies suggesting that that might not always be true. So there might be a little bit of bacteria that might be in the fetal compartment. Mm. Um, but if that is true, it's, um, it's a very small amount of bacteria. So we can think of the fetal environment as being very largely bacteria-free or microbiome-free. And it's really the, the fetus's exit in, out of the womb and into the world that actually sets up their initial microbiome and so whether that's through cesarean section or whether it's through a vaginal birth both of them result in um, a developing microbiome in the now infant so what happens is that depending on your mode of birth whether it's a cesarean section or a vaginal birth you may end up for the first couple of months of your life having a slightly different looking microbiota Um, so if you're born through cesarean section the first uh, microbiota that babies have will look more like their mother's skin microbiome. That makes sense because they're kind of nuzzling up with the mom and that's their first exposure to these bacteria in the environment. 
In contrast, if you're born through the vagina, through a vaginal birth, then your first microbiota will actually look more like the mother's vaginal microbiome. Mm because that's the way that you came yeah. into the world. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, we, we kind of call those events, the birth, the initial seeding event of the microbiome. So it like plants the seed for the development of these uh, microbial communities across the course of the infant's life. And that's how we get started. And is that sort of, it builds, I guess, the, like you said, the seeding or the foundation of um, a baby's, okay. Yeah. And then from there... Um, Actually, before I, I move on, the reason why I had asked during pregnancy, and if, if there aren't answers, then I think it's important for, for parents to know, because what I've been hearing is some mothers will take, um, and we might end up talking about this later as well, but probiotics during pregnancy to help their the fetus's microbiome. <laughs> So is, is this something that has been propagated in society, you know, or, or it's some sort of misconception or misinterpretation of the literature? Um, it's possible that that could influence the infant's microbiome be through the birth process, but uh, I don't really see what the pathway would be before birth. Oh, interesting. Like said, okay. Yeah, the fetal compartment doesn't have um, any bacteria. Mm -hmm. But that being said, you know, if if the mother has, I don't know, some some problems, so for example, I don't know, diarrhea or something like that, and they need to take a probiotic because of that, it's um, that's certainly a good reason to take a probiotic. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't good. think there's great evidence that it's going to uh, the infant's microbiota itself unless it's through the birth process. Interesting. Thank you. Um, so then now we spoke about the, 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 the method of delivery and um, this sort of builds the foundation of their, their microbiome in the composition. So mm -hmm. it, going back, I guess, to basics, when we say the microbiota or the, the microbiome, are, we're talking about many different kinds, right, of, of bacteria and, and certain composition. Exactly. Yeah. Many, many, many different kinds. <laughs> um, we have billions of bacteria in the gut um, and, you know, we can look at them at numerous different levels. So we kind of classify them according to this like taxonomic tree. So we can go up from these really broad levels, like, um, I don't know, the kingdom <laughs> um, down to maybe like the phylum and the mm -hmm. genus, and then all the way down to the species and even the strain. So even within species, wow. we have different strains of bacteria that are different to one another even when they're called the same thing. So there's incredible diversity in the microbiota. How, how do you as a researcher study this? <laughs> how, when, when you're, and we'll talk about the, the studies soon, but it's just so interesting because it's so vast. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about it, I guess, in society as just microbiome, but, mm -hmm. and then we talk about it as being, like you said, either good or bad or pathogenic or beneficial for a person, mm -hmm. but it's more than that. It's so complex. And do you look at the composition when you, you know, when we're talking about something that is good, I guess? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, you can look at it in a variety of different ways. And mm -hmm. usually you look at it in many different ways in one study. So one way is to look at the composition of bacteria. So you could do something like count up the number of different bacterial groups. So say you're looking at the genus level or the species level, you can say, how many different species do you have in the gut? Mm -hmm. And then I can compare how many species I have in my gut to how many species you have in your gut. And then we can make some sort of comparison there. We could also look at um, you know, the types of bacteria in the gut and how related they are to one another. 
So we might have some bacteria in our gut that while they might be different species, they might be pretty closely related to one another on that taxonomic tree. So they might be like cousins, mm. uh, but we could also have bacteria that are super different from one another. So they're really, you know, far, they're related far back in evolutionary history. Um, and so we can also look at how much of our bacteria are closely related um, to one another. And then we can also just look at single bacteria. So we can say, listen, we know from a variety of different studies that lactobacillus is really important. Um, so let's have a look and just see how many different lactobacillus species you have in the gut or, or what have you. So you can look at it in a variety of different ways when you're just looking at the bacteria. You can also look at what the bacteria do in the gut. So you can say like, what do these bacteria have the potential to do in terms of their genes? Like some are really good at processing uh, fiber and some are really good at, you know, you know, producing a certain neurotransmitter. So we mm. could say, you know, how enriched is your particular gut for doing X, for doing one of these, um, for doing one of these things. Mm -hmm. So lots of different ways to look at it. <laughs> Which means you know lots of lots of research left to, to do this right exactly there is no shortage of research to do in this field for sure this field of research is it still considered to be in in its infancy yeah i it, i it is my um assessment that it is still in infancy. um i guess some people wouldn't agree with that it also depends on on what i mean even within looking at the microbiome um it's not one field. So for example, people look at microbiome evolution. Some people look at microbiome in different ecological environments. And then, you know, people like me look at the human microbiome. Mm -hmm. I would say in particular, looking at the human microbiome is still in its infancy, mm. but really microbiota research, although it's been around for a really long time, the methods that we used to look at the microbiome look very different today to what they look like in the past. So in the past, to look at bacteria, we had to get like a, a culture dish and put some culture medium on it and then wipe something on the culture disc and then put it in an incubator and grow it for like a week, a month, whatever. And then we would look at the bacteria that have grown. And so that was really limiting because... A, that takes a really long time and B, only certain bacteria really like to grow on a dish. Some bacteria really don't like to grow on a dish. And so it was only when we developed these gene sequencing approaches that we were able to look at and really understand the diversity in the microbiota, mm. how many different bacterial species exist. And um, that really opened up this research field. So in a technical perspective, all of the modern research on the microbiota is is really very much in its infancy. It's mm -hmm. very recent. That's so fascinating. I'm sure processes and the, the procedures will continue to improve, hopefully, and, yes. and keep opening <laughs> doors. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now we, we were at the part where we understand that, you know, at birth, this is where the foundation is laid. What happens... Um, after this so I this week I was lucky enough to collaborate on Instagram with your group um, mm -hmm. at your lab and something that we learned is that when a baby starts solids or starts mm -hmm. is introduced foods now we're that's another aspect that starts to um, change the composition of their microbiome how does this work 
Yeah, I mean, even before we get to the transition to solids, you know, babies um, really have breastfeeding plays a really enormous oh, yeah. role yeah. in um, in the composition of the infant's gut bacteria. So the really interesting thing about breastfeeding that sometimes parents don't realize is that we actually produce, this is truly amazing, we as humans produce sugars in our breast milk that actually can't be digested by the baby. So instead of being digested by the baby, they pass through the gastrointestinal tract, they get to the point of the gastrointestinal tract that, where there are a lot of bacteria, and actually what these sugars do is feed the bacteria. So we were talking earlier about how much we have evolved with bacteria and how important they are. Mm -hmm. This really illustrates that point. So actually we produce things specifically to feed the early bacteria that these wow. humans have in their gut, which is kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. So right from the start of life, so from the first meal that a baby has, if the baby is breastfeeding, then that is really establishing these um, different bacterial communities and it's feeding them and nurturing them. Mm. And then, as you mentioned, there's this big transition, this big shift that occurs when infants move to solid foods. So before they move to solids, because they're breastfeeding, they're eating these particular sugars, they have one type or very few, very limited types of bacteria in the gut. Most of them are lactobacillus uh, types of bacteria. And so then when you transition to solids, what you're doing is introducing all of this new food for different bacteria to eat. And all of a sudden there's this huge blossoming of different types of bacteria because there are many new food sources available. And so all of a sudden you begin to see um, many different types of bacteria growing. You also see the introduction of bacteria through food because obviously there's some bacteria on food. Mm. As children start transitioning to a solid diet, they're also around that time starting to move around more independently. They might be sucking on toes and shooting <laughs> dogs and dirt. Yeah. <laughs> And so it's also at that point in time um, from those many different sources that children's microbiome really explodes. <laughs> so as a parent, uh, like I said, especially when I had my first, it, it changed. Now I, have, I had my third and you kind of let loose a little bit. And you, <laughs> you let them put whatever you, they want in their mouth. But as a first time parent, I think that we, we naturally just want to protect and shield our child, like you mm -hmm. said, from eating shoes <laughs> because they'll do it. <laughs> is Should we be sort of stepping back a little bit or having everybody wash and sanitize their hands and <laughs> before touching our child? Yeah, I mean, it's a great <laughs> question now, especially oh, during COVID, isn't yeah, it? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's a fine line because there are things that really are dangerous. Like we really, especially during a global pandemic in particular, yes. we want to be really super duper careful. Um, but there are some sources of bacteria in the environment that are probably okay for kids and we could probably step back a little bit. So for example, in non-pandemic times, if children haven't been playing with anything particularly dangerous, then maybe not doing as much hand washing. So really mm -hmm. reserving hand washing for, you know, before meals or if children have been playing with, I don't know, something really presumably very dangerous, like mm -hmm. <laughs> who knows the, the amount of things that children can get into. Yeah, just about everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How about a shoe? <laughs> let's go, with, let's say you came back from the park or somewhere and your child ate your shoe. <laughs> yeah. So with things like that, you know, you would think, um, you know, there's potential for shoes in particular to have 
you know, dog feces oh. or like many different environmental contaminants yeah. that you probably <laughs> would want to be quite careful about. But say they're in, you know, in the forest and, you know, they're playing around in the leaves and the, and the mm-hmm. dirt and things like that. That's not something I would be particularly concerned about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think yeah. It, it really just depends. Um, but we could definitely go with being less cleanly in general mm-hmm. with the caveat of that being during non-pandemic time. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm, that's an interesting point, though, in terms of what's going on right now, where a, a baby's environment will be much more sterile or clean than it than it was before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, is that... Are you anticipating a big change in the microbiome composition of babies right now? Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a really tough part of my study, actually, because we wow. collected some data before the pandemic and we're collecting some data after. So, I mean, we can see, oh. we'll be able to see what <laughs> actually ends up happening there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's certainly true that the level of sterility in the environment um, definitely has a big impact on the microbiota. So many different aspects of the environment do. So for example, if you have a dog or a pet in the home, then that really has a big impact on the microbiota. If you Mm -hmm. have other siblings in the home, then that has a big impact as well. Um, So definitely the level of sterility in the home is is going to have an effect. We just haven't seen it happening yet, but I'm sure there will be studies coming out very soon showing (laughs) <laughs> is there something that a parent can do? So I, I'm, let's say a new parent is listening right now and mm-hmm. they might be um, a little fearful that their, their child's composition won't be what it should be to keep them healthy and so on. Is there something that we, a parent can do right now if they have a young baby? And if they're nursing, I'm assuming that provides, you know, um, some mm-hmm. good part of it. But it, let's say they're, they're not nursing or they don't, you know, they finished nursing. What can a parent do? Yeah, I I would first tell a new parent to not panic. There are bigger things in the world than the microbiome, and um, one of them is is COVID. So I would certainly mm. you know always play it safe, especially during um, this particular time in our um, in our history. Mm-hmm. So I would I would really encourage them not to not to be too concerned about it at all. They're still getting a microbiota, um, you know, <laughs> developing yes. very much. Um, similarly to what they would be otherwise, particularly if they're, I certainly wouldn't worry if they're, um, if they're nursing, that's, you know, the, almost the entirety of their microbiota is going to be coming from nursing. Um, but otherwise they're getting bacteria from so many different sources. Like they're getting it from your skin, as I mentioned before, even just things around the house. Um, so even though they're indoors, they're still getting colonized. They're getting it from their foods. They're onto solids. So, I would really encourage parents not to worry too much about that at this point in time. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see how things change, but, you know, even, even events as big as the way you come into the world, whether it's through cesarean section or through um, a vaginal birth, those effects can be seen in the microbiota. Their importance for long-term health is, maybe there but it's contested and they don't seem to last forever so Mm. you can look at children who you know who are much further on in their life and it's it doesn't seem to be an enormous effect at that stage so yeah i wouldn't be too concerned about it 
that's good advice i think for parents especially new parents right we tend to worry a lot (laughs) that's perfect i i always um let people know who i'll be interviewing to see if they have any questions for this person and the two common questions for you um were if probiotics should be given to children or even babies um to help with their microbiome you know uh, composition and the second question was if a baby has taken antibiotics will this have a negative impact um, on a child yeah those are two excellent questions i get them all the time and i feel like you know it's i'm so excited to be able to talk about them because they're clearly on um, parents minds mm-hmm. so let's go with probiotics first so basically um you know, what, what is a probiotic? When can children take them? And are they going to have any beneficial effects? Mm-hmm. So basically the term probiotic means, um, you know, for life. So they're meant to be um, these bacteria that are, um, that have a health benefit for the host. And we are the host, we are the, the human host. Mm-hmm. So by definition, probiotics should be beneficial for humans. Um, so there are some conditions under which probiotics can make a really big impact for health. So for example, for children who have, um, say like infectious diarrhea, mm-hmm. um, there is a probiotic called lactobacillus rhamnosus. It's also often called, um, lactobacillus GG on probiotic containers okay. and that lactobacillus, there is evidence that it can shorten the course of infectious diarrhea. Um, We also know that in adults, probiotics can help people with Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome, a variety of other kind of gastrointestinal conditions. But the important thing to understand here is that a lot of that evidence um, has used probiotics to help when something is already disrupted. So when we've already, you know, got diarrhea or we've Mm -hmm. we've already got, you know, Crohn's disease or irritable bowel syndrome or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And there are some, so that's basically the standard use of probiotics is to help when something is disrupted. So to help get something back to normal. Okay. And we can think of that um, as working kind of in the sense of like a, of a hotel. So for example, our gut is a hotel. We have many different spaces in the gut for um, different types of bacteria to live. So some really like living in the wall of, of the gut and some bacteria like living in the little projections that come out of the gut, the villi. Um, and so when we don't have bacteria taking up all of those different living spaces, then there's room for these pathogenic bacteria to come in and kind of set up shop and multiply and take oh, over. Okay. So one of the reasons for taking probiotics when something's disrupted in the gut is to kind of fill it up with these good bacteria to make sure that there's no room for these pathogenic bacteria to come in. But, you know, there are more exciting claims that are coming out about probiotics, um, particularly for cognition. And, and lots of parents are really interested in, you know, can I promote my children's brain development? And can I make my child into a genius through, through <laughs> <laughs> and I wish that were true. Yeah, um, there's no magic pill. <laughs> there's no magic yeah. pill. Exactly. So no, you can't make your child a genius, unfortunately, through probiotics. But there's, you know, a little bit of data that's coming out. There's certainly more in rats and mice than there are in humans. Mm-hmm. But there's a little bit of data coming out that shows that probiotics can help with cognition. So as one example, um, there's a 
pretty um, good study in mice that showed that you can change memory. So if you give mice a high fat diet, then that actually impairs this particular form of memory. So it's a memory that really relies on the hippocampus. And then they found that if you give probiotics to those rats that or mice that were on the high fat diet, that actually changed them back to normal. So it helped prevent those memory deficits, those memory mm. changes. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but what they found in the control group was that mice who were not given the high fat diet but who were given the probiotic, they actually started to look like the high fat diet mice. So oh. the probiotic just by itself <laughs> seems to be changing something about memory. So, you know, I think this tells us two things. I think it tells us that, wow, that's cool. The microbiota seems to be involved in learning and memory and they might be pretty powerful. So that's really neat. Mm -hmm. but secondly, it tells us that there's so much more that needs to be learned about the probiotics yeah. um, and the effect of the microbiota on, on memory development. So taking that to humans, there's some research in humans that shows that probiotics might be beneficial for cognition. So for example, some researchers here at UCLA um, fed probiotics to healthy women for two weeks and they did a brain scan pre and post the probiotic treatment and they did show changes in the brain particularly in emotion regions like amygdala and mm. prefrontal cortex so that was cool um, but you know again that's just one study there are there are a few like that but um, it's also in adults and there's a long way to go in terms mm -hmm. of really understanding what that means but I want you to know that the probiotics that are being sold on shelves they're not the same as drugs in terms of, of the probiotic bacteria that they list on the outside of the container. There is some evidence that they're not always included in the actual probiotics. So oh, yeah. sometimes they're not included at all. Sometimes they're not included at the same concentration. And secondly to that, you know, what we know about probiotics are that the strain matters. And so if you want to use probiotics for a particular reason, I would speak to your doctor or someone who's familiar with probiotics to try and pick the right strain and actually buy that strain so that mm. you're trying to target at least the right bacteria. So if somebody has IBS and now understands that perhaps taking probiotics could help, you know, they it's it's better if they speak to their doctor rather than just buy over-the-counter um, yes. probiotics. Got it. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned all that. And you know, so now thinking, uh, going back to also the the questions that the parents asked. The second mm -hmm. part was in terms of antibiotics. So would this diminish or have a negative impact on the composition? Yes. So antibiotics. I'm going to not use the term negative because okay. um, that suggests that, you know, that's the wrong thing for the antibiotics to doing. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. Antibiotics are designed to get rid of the bacteria. That's their whole purpose. And yeah. so it's definitely true that when you take an antibiotic or a course of antibiotics, it destroys most, but not all of the microbiota, but that's actually a good thing. That's why you're taking the antibiotic. Mm -hmm because the reason that we take antibiotics is because we have a bacterial infection. So we're trying to wipe out the bacteria, wipe the slate clean and start again. In the future, 
what we hope is that we can be more targeted with the antibiotics that we use so that we can specifically wipe out the pathogenic bacteria and we can keep all of the healthy bacteria um, you know, in, in the gut. Mm. Um, but we're not there yet. So what I would say about antibiotics is to know, firstly, that they are powerful drugs mm-hmm. and it's so good that we have them. They, have, they were an enormous revolution in yes. our healthcare system mm-hmm. across the world. Um, but to acknowledge that they're powerful. And so doctors have become increasingly aware of things like antibiotic resistance um, and the fact that wiping out the microbiota is not always a good thing. And so doctors have become very um, careful and cautious about when they prescribe uh, antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And we as consumers should also be really cautious about when we use them and only use them when needed. True. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Yeah, I I have noticed the shift, you know, even here in in Canada, we, our pediatricians will not go towards that right away if it's not needed. And there's more of a discussion around it. Um, uh, Not a wait and see, but sort of. (laughs) Um, Because and I'm I'm guessing that's, you know, the reason why, especially Mm -hmm. with ear infections, children have Mm -hmm. so many ear infections. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're prescribed these antibiotics very often. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's important for us to mention that. And thank you for, for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now here's my interesting part. Now we're going to talk a bit more about your research. And you, um, you your research has linked um, something that to me is very fascinating, what we call, you know, the, the brain uh, gut connection, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is, so we've been talking about the gut microbiota now and, and we understand a bit more about what it is and what impacts it. Um, but now what is this connection that you've been seeing or we researchers have, have found between the gut and the brain? Yeah, it's a really interesting connection. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So let's first start by thinking about what microbes are. Like, what do these bacteria do in the gut? They're not just kind of passively sitting there doing nothing and taking up space. They're really active. And so what I like to think, the way I like to think about um, the microbiota is that each one of them is a little chemical factory. So bacteria produce, for example, a ton of the neurotransmitters that are really critical for health and really critical for brain development and brain function. So for example, if we take serotonin, this is a neurotransmitter that lots of people are familiar with. It's the neurotransmitter that we target with antidepressants. Mm -hmm. So 90% of serotonin is actually produced in the gut. And some of that serotonin influences the brain, not all of it, but some of it influences the brain and it has effects across the body. So that's just one example of something that the bacteria do for us. They produce these chemicals, these neurochemicals that are really important for the brain and brain development. So there are also links between the microbiome and our mental health. And Mm. we also know that our mental health is associated with our brain health. So for example, we know that um, if you have depression as an adult or anxiety as an adult, you're much more likely to have gastrointestinal issues than, you know, someone, some Joe off the street who doesn't have anxiety or depression. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know that if you have 
gastrointestinal issues like irritable bowel syndrome, then you're also more likely to have anxiety and depression than someone who doesn't have these gastrointestinal issues. So these mental health symptoms and these gastrointestinal physical health symptoms really go hand in hand. I also think it's important to, you know, when trying to understand how the microbiome is linked to mental health, to think about just the language that we use to describe our feelings. Mm. So how many times have you kind of spoken about, I don't know, having a gut feeling or you were gutted or it was gut wrenching or even, you know, um, gutsy, like it was a really gutsy move to, mm. to do that. Or and butterflies so, in your stomach, that exactly, feeling yeah. when you're nervous and you're, or you're excited. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. So there's lots of different examples in our language of how we <laughs> connect at this kind of implicit level. Our bacterial, um, what am I saying? Our um, microbiome, our gastrointestinal symptoms, sorry, and mm-hmm. our mental health. Um, but all of that's correlational. So we're just noticing that these things seem to go together. And I think the link between the brain and the microbiota has been uh, really nicely illustrated in some of those germ-free models that you actually mentioned at the start of this conversation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can create these um, mouse and rat models where the mice grow up completely germ-free. And so what we find in these germ-free animals is that their brain development is massively different so really very different trajectories of development across numerous different indices so you can look at like myelin so like the fatty um covering of of neurons in the brain you can look at um different genes that are expressed in the brain you can look at the structure of the brain in these germ-free mice models and see that the brain development is really very different so this is some causal evidence that shows us that when that we actually need bacteria in order to build the brain that we have today. And just to remind parents, I think, who are listening, when we say germ-free, it's not, with these animal studies, it's not, we can't replicate that. We cannot <laughs> replicate it's, it's not, yeah, exactly. It's not the current situation with COVID where we we're washing our hands more. It's, no. it's literally germ-free. <laughs> just to remind parents (laughs) (laughs) i I think as parents sometimes we hear certain words or certain things and we just kind of take that into a certain context (laughs) or you know and so that germ free is not what we're living now it's completely germ free (laughs) yeah exactly okay the only reason we use these germ free models is to really to really show that causal Mm -hmm. link but other than that, you know, it doesn't have too much relevance to the human condition because mm-hmm. we cannot be germ-free. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so even actually there's another study that I'll tell you about very quickly, which is using, um, this might be interesting to parents, so you can actually transplant bacteria between different mice or even between different humans. Mm. Um, so this is called a fecal microbiome transplant. And so what that means is what it sounds like. You get the, the poop from, from one <laughs> mouse and you feed it to another mouse. And oh. in essence, you therefore swap their microbiomes around. Oh. And so there were some studies um, quite a few years ago now that took mice who were um, naturally quite outgoing and another group of mice that were naturally kind of inhibited or anxious 
And they did this fecal microbiota transplant, so swapping their bacteria, and they found that those behaviours actually swapped as well. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so these mice that were originally really anxious became a little bit more outgoing and, you know, the opposite direction for the outgoing mice. So there's definitely causal evidence from animal studies that the brain and mental health and um, the microbiota are associated. Um, in humans, we don't have that causal evidence yet exactly. We're still kind of building on it because it's also, it's harder to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we know that there are lots of different ways in which the bacteria can influence the brain and the mental health. So it's, you know, we have many different pathways. We've got electrical pathways through the vagus nerve. We've got chemical pathways through the neurotransmitters that I mentioned before. We Mm -hmm. have immune pathways. So it really is a system when you look into it that's really heavily interacting with one another. So although it sounds weird, there's lots of evidence to suggest that the microbiome may really be important for our mental health. And I, I think um, one of your papers, you you talk about gastrointestinal systems in, in children uh, and the the link to anxiety, or I think mm. psychiatric symptoms. Can, mm. can we talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's something that I know it's in, again, it's in its infancy, I think, in terms of, of, of what we're looking at here. But maybe this would be something interesting for, for parents to understand a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so for a very long time, pediatricians have noted that one of the most common complaints that young children have when they're coming into primary primary care are unexplained gastrointestinal symptoms. They're yes. really common in childhood, and I'm sure all of mm-hmm. your parents out there will, will probably understand that. So, mm-hmm. lots of tummy aches and pains that are somewhat um, unexplained. And so in adults, we've known for a really long time that there's a link, I mentioned it earlier, between gastrointestinal symptoms like irritable bowel syndrome or gastrointestinal pain and mental health. Um, But we didn't know really too much until very recently about when that association emerged in development. So does this association also exist in kids? So the study you're referring to, Cindy, was one um, that we did where we were simply trying to see whether anxiety in children was associated with their gastrointestinal symptoms. Mm -hmm. And we found that it was. So the more gastrointestinal symptoms that the children had, then the higher their anxiety levels were. And importantly, with that study, we actually found we had data across many different years. So we were able to show that gastrointestinal symptoms at one point in time were associated with anxiety into the future, even when we even when we kind of controlled for ongoing gastrointestinal symptoms. So that's another way of saying that um, gastrointestinal symptoms might be predictive of anxiety in the long run. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, you know, because a lot of parents will have children with gastrointestinal complaints and we don't mm-hmm. want to panic them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's lots of individual variability um, here, but it's worth noting that um, the gut can be a window into our children's mental health, particularly at a time when they're not as good as ex- at explaining how they might That's be true. feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely worth mentioning there. Yeah, I th- and I think that's why it, it exactly. I think that's why it's important to mention it because, like you said, sometimes we don't know what's going on in our child is young. I think the children in your study were between the ages of three and eighteen. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so big age range. 
yeah three is is young and that's the age where they're starting to be able to communicate certain things Mm -hmm. but not entirely Mm -hmm. um so these unexplained you know stomach aches um you know maybe in that moment a parent should like you said it's not that it's a direct link but we should think maybe there's something a new event you know something Mm -hmm. that they're worried about and just to think about that um at, in that moment it's it's a, a good way to go about it i guess and then your like you said it pre- it it suggested or they predicted five years later i think it was in the study yeah. um the onset of, of, of anxiety um mm-hmm. symptoms so again it's not for parents to worry but it's to be aware i, mm-hmm. I think of, of this and i i hope that this your research continues to show this because it's so much easier to see these symptoms when you know, if it's a stomach pain uh, that a child complains about rather than anxiety symptoms, which are internal, we don't see that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And we're kind of, we're continuing that work to try and, you know, one day what we'd really like to do is to have a really simple algorithm that, you know, pediatricians can have in their office where Mm. a parent comes in and says, you know, my child's been suffering from these symptoms and the pediatrician can kind of predict with some level of accuracy, this is a Mm. while off, but some level of accuracy, whether that child might be at risk for anxiety and then they can go and get um, some specific help for that. So that's kind of where we're looking towards in the future, but we're a while off that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope so you know I think back so I studied schizophrenia and, and psychosis mm-hmm. and you think of these prodromal sim- symptoms that you know for for in psychosis it was just something like losing motivation or mm-hmm. not not um, feeling joy or happiness in something that you used to um, mm-hmm. and those little signs and symptoms that kind of go unnoticed then lead into a first episode of psychosis um, for some um, mm-hmm. and that's why I think it's so important to, to understand the symptoms that we might not think of in, in those early early stages <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. Um, what else I guess to sort of close off our conversation um, mm-hmm. sh- w- given your research and your 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 work what would you like parents to know about all of this the microbiome and the, the link between the gut and the brain I think um I think one thing that's really important for parents to know, we've kind of touched on this a little earlier, but is this idea of a magic bullet Mm. and or a silver bullet. Um, So I feel like uh, as humans, um, we are very much programmed to try and look for the thing that is going (laughs) to solve our health. And, you know, it's not a recent phenomenon, um, even, you know, way back in, I think it's the uh, late 1800s, I'm going to say, um, there was someone um, called Ily Mechkinov who, um, who basically suggested in a talk in, in Paris, he was, a, he was a scientist, he later went on to win a Nobel Prize, and he suggested in a talk in Paris that um, bacteria might be, so probiotic bacteria might be uh, really important for longevity. And the story goes that everyone, you know, that in Paris that year buying um, these probiotic milk drinks was all the rage. So at that point, there were like these sour milk drinks. <laughs> Yum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Revolting. Yeah. Um, and it's funny that that was such a long time ago. Um, and we're seeing the same thing now. 
So this microbiome research has had this huge resurgence. People are really interested and excited in it, much like the people in Paris, the Parisians were all that time ago. And I think that says something. I think that says that us as humans, we love to look for these exciting things that are going to improve mental health, going to improve physical health, these magic fixes. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really important to have that excitement for sure. Like I'm the most excited about the microbiome in the whole world. I think it's (laughs) the coolest thing. Um, But to also have that level of understanding that, nothing in the world is going to be a magic bullet and mm. no no probiotic is going to be the the, the solve of all the mm-hmm. problems that we have and it's just one piece of a really complicated puzzle of human health it's an important piece um, but there are lots of other important pieces as well so we should look after our microbiota absolutely we should be really aware of the link between our gastrointestinal health and our mental health and we should look after our mental health and through that look after Mm -hmm. the bacteria that we have in our body Uh, but to not get too caught up about it so you know i wouldn't be you know rushing to the store and spending hundreds of dollars on probiotics (laughs) at this stage we're still at such an early stage of the science so i really encourage you all to uh, to learn about this magical world of bacteria that live inside us to learn about the best foods that we can eat to really help it grow and develop and to also acknowledge that um, there's a lot that we need to learn at this stage. Um, so to just have patience with the science while it kind of catches up with um, all of the interest in, in the microbiota. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's so important to mention that. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> and you meant you touched upon diet and I, I, I realized that we, we didn't talk about that, but that is <laughs> another part. So let's say an adult says a parent is listening now and they realize that they were not looking after their microbiota. What can they do in terms of diet? Yeah. So the diet is the best way. So beyond probiotics, you know, those are things that we're introducing to the body that are, you know, not normally there. I think if you want to address the microbiota, if you want to get a healthy microbiome, the best way to do that is through diet. And there are some things that we know about diet that are really good for the microbiota. So the first thing is, I know this is going to be hard for the children to hear, but (laughs) eating lots of fiber, lots of leafy green vegetables is really good, (laughs) really good for your bacteria. And the reason that it's good is because fiber, um, much like those sugars in breast milk that we were talking about earlier, lots of fiber from vegetables isn't digested by us ourselves. It actually goes through and it's digested by our bacteria. So by eating these leafy greens, we're not just feeding ourselves, but we're feeding the bacteria that live inside of us. (laughs) Sounds weird when you hear it like that. (laughs) I have a salad tonight and feed my bacteria. Exactly. Maybe that's a good way to convince your children to eat the leafy greens. They've got a whole zoo inside of them that they need to feed. (laughs) So that's really important. We also Mm -hmm. know that things like... um, Our long-chain fatty acids like omega-3s, like DHA, which is found in fish, Mm -hmm. these are really good for feeding the bacteria as well. So these are things that we talk about as prebiotics rather than probiotics. So a probiotic is an actual bacteria. A prebiotic is a food for a bacteria. And so um, omega-3s are really good food for bacteria as well. 
We also know that um, like polyphenols, which are found in chocolate and red wine and green tea, um, again, these can be prebiotic. They don't get digested to humans. They go down to the bacteria and they can be acted on there. Uh, we also know that chocolate has lots of sugar, so they, it's all in moderation. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, at least there, there's one that we can feed, that we can, we'll all, we'll all go home tonight and have some chocolate and chocolate feed our microbiota and wine. Yeah. <laughs> and wine. <laughs> um, so one diet that, um, an easy diet to think of, because, you know, life is busy and we're always trying to figure out ways to, to make it easier for ourselves. So one mm-hmm. diet that you can kind of think of in your mind as being really, um, exemplary of of these different food groups is the mediterranean diet so the mediterranean diet has lots of leafy greens it has lots of um, omega-3 fatty acids it has lots of polyphenols Um, and there are some studies in adults where they've given a a mediterranean diet and actually shown that that um, really improves um, mental health in, in certain populations so definitely targeting you know it doesn't need to be a mediterranean diet but targeting those types of food Mm -hmm. groups lots of leafy greens and think about it as actually feeding that zoo of bacteria that live in your gut (laughs) i love that i I love that and i'm also happy that i married somebody italian so now i can i can say that when i go to my in-laws and they have the big salad and the pasta too and the chocolate and the wine exactly it's it's a perfect diet (laughs) mine is the three plates of pasta but it's okay Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me tonight. I I had a lot of fun chatting with you. (laughs) It is my absolute pleasure. I had so much fun. It's my favorite topic and I'm so excited that parents are interested in learning about it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to reach out to me at info at Once again, leave a review if you'd like to be one of the two winners next episode that I'll announce to win Meltdown Mountain from my website. And if you'd like to join our membership, visit Kirsteron.com and click on the top banner to join us on Patreon. Hope you have a lovely and beautiful week. I'll see you next time.